Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. And welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Doug Bean, the Chief Commercial Officer at Cala Health. Cala Health is a bioelectronic medicine company transforming the standard of care for chronic disease. According to their website, Cala's wearable neuromodulation therapies merge innovations in neuroscience and technology to deliver individualized peripheral nerve stimulation. And its vertically integrated commercial model is reshaping the delivery of prescription therapies. CalaHealth's lead product, CalaTrio, is the only non-invasive prescription therapy for essential tremor. And they're currently developing new therapies in neurology, cardiology, and psychiatry. Wow, that was a lot there, a lot of science. If you're wondering all that means, and I certainly did as I was preparing for this podcast, well, just stand by for a few seconds and Doug will explain it all to you. I'll admit, as I was getting ready for today, I had a lot to learn. I'd never even heard of bioelectronic medicine. And frankly, the first thought that came to my mind was Steve Rogers and the $6 million man. If you're of a certain age, then you'll get that reference. And if not, kids, well, that's what Google is for. Anyway, Doug, welcome to Definitively Speaking. Hello, Justin. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. We are glad to have you here, and I look forward to learning a lot about this new and exciting space. So I shared the corporate website speak a few moments ago, but let's de-geek the speak a little bit here. What in the world is bioelectronic medicine? All right. Um, well, it, it is an exciting uh, innovation in, in healthcare. At the core, essentially, bioelectronic medicine is a new approach to treating and diagnosing disease. Okay. It represents a convergence of molecular medicine, neuroscience, bioengineering. Essentially, it uses device technology to read and modulate the electric activity within the body's nervous system. A type of bioelectronic medicine that's been around for decades is called deep brain stimulation. In fact, it's been around since 1987. And the space has seen a lot of very, actually very little innovation until recently. Um, and that's where Cala comes in, among other bioelectronic medicine companies. Uh, I'd be happy to share in a little more specificity kind of how Cala has yeah. pioneered bioelectronic medicine to create a whole new way to treat uh, patients struggling with movement disorder, if you like. Oh, yeah, we're going to get there. But you said deep brain therapy. Did I get that right? Deep brain stimulation. The acronym is typically DBS. It's the process of um, essentially... Um, brain surgery, where you drill holes in a brain and you attach electrodes to um, uh, what's basically called the VIM or the thalamus part of the brain. Okay. And it stimulates the brain to reduce tremor. It's almost like a pacemaker. You have these electrodes in your brain and this battery pack within your chest that, you know, modulates or calibrates to the, to the tremor frequency and improves uh, patients' ability to function on, on their daily activities without having tremor. That sounds like really painful. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. <laughs> Only 1% of the population um, has you know, been able to either be interested in or qualify for it. In all the years that big players out there in DBS 
you know, there's been only around 40,000 patients that have benefited from it in over these decades. So it's, you, you do the math, 40,000 out of like the 10 million right. patients suffering from this in the U.S. alone, you obviously have a huge treatment gap. So to your point, yes, it sounds painful. It is painful. It comes with a lot of um, uh, health risks that uh, uh, really limit the, the qualification of people to, um, to, to have that type of therapy. Got it. And so is Cala like built on that foundation, but taking it to like the next generation and making it less painful? That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to try to tell the story of our founder. Yeah, sure. Kate Rosenbluth. Um, she is amazing. I often think of her as like this combination of genius and TED Talk. She just has this amazing intellect and ability to communicate. And her story of how Cala was founded will answer your question directly. So um, Cala was founded out of the Stanford Biodesign Program. And that program is really about identifying huge patient unmet needs and putting the smartest people on it. And Kate is a neuroscientist. She's, she's, she's uh, studied in UCSF and Stanford. And while at Stanford, she was um, studying a bunch of deep brain stimulation cases that we were just talking about. And there's a, there's a point in the deep brain stimulation procedure where in order to determine exactly where to place those electrodes, right, to apply the therapy, they have each patient open up their arm and they use a paintbrush on the back of the wrist to say, okay, where is the stimulation happening in the brain? Because the radial and median nerve are within the wrist and they attach the exact spot in the brain where the tremor is sourced. And so Kate's big idea was like, huh, if you could actually stimulate the radial and medial nerve peripherally from the wrist with enough you know, power, let's say, you don't need to do it invasively. You could do it non-invasively. And that, in fact, is the, the, her idea, how it was sourced to start Cala. And in fact, we've proven uh, over and over again with clinical studies that you, in fact, can effectively reduce tremor peripherally without surgery or without drugs, for that matter. Isn't wow. that cool? That's amazing. So let's just define for our listeners out there. I mean, like I come from a very non-scientific background. I'm very proud of my English degree. Uh, <laughs> what is essential tremor? Okay, essential tremor is um, it's it's a progressive. It's one of the most progressive neurological disorders. It's characterized by this kind of involuntary rhythmic shaking. Okay, it's the most prevalent movement disorder, and depends on your source. If you look at the International Central Tremor Foundation, which is the largest patient advocacy um, organization in the world, they estimate it anywhere between up to seven to 10 million people in the U.S. alone, eight times the prevalence of Parkinson's disease, for example. Um, you know, the ET patients have these abnormal firing patterns in the brain that cause the tremor that affect many parts of the body, but most commonly, almost like 95%, it manifests itself in hand tremors. And these hand tremors are very disabling. So think about like just drinking a cup of coffee, writing, right? Typing on your phone or your iPad. Those basic activities of daily life, you can't accomplish, which then turns into a higher incidence of mental health issues like depression. Um, oftentimes, because this happens you know, even, you know, in the you know, 40s and 50s, people, you know, get, you know, can't maintain their jobs. And this then manifests into a higher incidence of substance abuse and overall a higher 
cost of being a essential trauma patient than non-essential trauma patient. So it's it's really debilitating to people's lives, to the mental health, and to the overall healthcare system. Got it. And so the Cala invention is you basically put like a bracelet on like over your wrist, right? Or kind of your like forearm area and it delivers electrical stimulation and it stops your tremor. Yeah. So that, that's a great explanation. I mean, it, it is to your point, it's a wrist worn wearable, like a watch. Um, it's patient activated, right? So it's kind of, you know, when you have either an episode or if you want to just maintain your tremor, I would say the secret sauce though, Justin is in it's what's called Calataps therapy. And it does three things that are really um, compelling. And I think really brings to life your first question, what in the world is bioelectronic medicine? So like deep brain stimulation that they're trying to focus the stimulation in the VIM, which is part of the thalamus, the brain, this is the same thing for Cala, but we do it non-invasively from the wrist. And so the three things that I think are really compelling are first, um, with Cala, we're able to, for each patient to detect their unique physiology, which really is their tremor frequency. So the frequency of their hand tremor is correlated to the irregularity of the tremor within the brain. So we're able to detect each patient's unique physiology, which is critical because the only way to improve tremor on a patient is to understand what their specific physiology is and then calibrate, automatically calibrate to that physiology. And so the software algorithms on the wearable device evaluate that tremor frequency and then automatically calibrate the stimulation to that specific patient's needs. And then the bands themselves have these precise proprietary electrodes that specifically target the radial and medial nerve in this kind of what we call this out-of-phase cycle to re overall reduce the patient's um, tremor. And it happens automatically. And so the, the tremor relief can last 90 minutes. So think about this. Think, you know, I'm going to go to the, the coffee shop and meet a friend. And I want to be confident in that social interaction. Well, I'm going to have a therapy before I do that. Or I need to write a letter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a therapy in advance of that so I can actually complete that letter successfully. And so it's beautiful in that, you know, it's really patient-driven. It's very personalized. And what, what's beautiful about this, unlike drugs, for example, that, you know, over time, your body kind of adjusts and the efficacy of that drug goes down, that doesn't happen with Cala. Right. But you don't wear this thing all day. You, you take it on and off, right? You could wear it all day. I mean, you know, each patient has his or her own um, approach. You know, some patients, just like your daily activities, you get up, you brush your teeth, and then you have lunch later on. So it's like you get up, you do your Calataps therapy in the morning, you do your Calataps therapy in the afternoon, and you get kind of relief throughout the day. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a piano player, and I'm going to play at two o'clock today. And so I'm going to start my, my, my therapy a little before two o'clock so I could play the piano. It really depends on how the patient wants to use the, the, the device. So, so now this is interesting, right? Because I did a little research in a definitive database and I looked at the number of claims filed with insurance companies uh, for ICD-10 ICD code G250, which is essential tremor treatment. And what I found interesting was that the number of claims filed increased 11% between 2019 and 2021. So even if I account for the, you know, the decrease in claims for COVID and everything else, 2019 and 2020 were up 11%. 
I don't think essential tremor is like a new disease. So like, what's changing? Well, it's it, that's a great insight. Um, we see that too in our data, um, both with definitive and another third-party data. So you, what you're saying is absolutely true. And I think the two main reasons for that, Justin, are one, as we all know, we have a very much of an aging population, especially here in the U.S., and so it's a progressive neurological disorder, as I mentioned. So as you age, it becomes um, you know, more acute, which then leads to more diagnosis. And then also what we've learned, which is really interesting, an essential tremor patient has on average 5.3 comorbidities. So as you accumulate more comorbidities, the incidence of essential tremor goes up. So I think those are the two factors that are really driving that high year-over-year growth rate of essential tremor patients. Got it. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about the, the business thesis for Cala, right? Because let's assume for a second, I'll take the high end of your range. You said seven to 10 million patients. Let's just say 10 million, okay? Yep. And I did some research and according to the Mayo Clinic, there are 200,000 cases, give or, so, give or take, new cases of essential tremor every year. At yep. some point, that feels like a relatively small target market. And yet you guys went out and raised a lot of venture capital. So where's the upside for Cala and all this? How do you expand beyond just essential tremor treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for doing your homework. Well, as I, as, I, as we said earlier, our, our vision as a company is to pi- continue to pioneer um, bioelectronic medicine to free people from struggling from chronic disease. Our first indication is essential tremor, and eventually we will span, expand into Parkinson's disease as well, which is also a very debilitating disease. But if you, if you pull back, you know, we are, we are a very innovative company. And the movement disorder space in and of itself, whether it's 7 million or 10 you know, million, for us, that's about a $20 billion market. And if you look at the data that we see, if you look at definitive healthcare data, we're seeing approximately a million new diagnoses per year in a central tremor, whether it be primary or secondary diagnosis. And so you know, that, that translates into almost a $2.5 billion total addressable market from an expansion perspective year over year. So I would actually say it's, it's a pretty significant marketplace. Um, and when you have a market that has a very low um, current standard of care, which I mean by that is you have drugs that are not very effective that come with high side effects or to our conversation earlier, you got brain surgery that only applies to less than 1% of the population that is highly invasive and costly. You have a massive gap in care. And so for a differentiated, safe and effective um, therapy like CALA, the market opportunity just in movement disorder is massive. And that's just the U.S. perspective. But our vision is not to stop at movement disorder, to your point. Um, our vision is to build this, this platform that treats multiple patients with multiple indications. So as you said earlier, we're moving to other areas like Parkinson's, um, like other indications within neurology, as well as psychiatry, cardiology, and the autoimmune disorders. And those kind of markets start to swell the business thesis, to your point, around the opportunity here. So, um, yes, movement disorder is, you could say it's our beachhead, um, but we are building a platform to address multiple indications with this safe and effective therapy. Right. Who are you selling this to? Do you sell insurance companies, doctors, health systems, patients, all of the above? Yes, (laughs) all the above. I would say, just to kind of like, let me simplify it. I'd consider us a two-sided marketplace. Okay. No different okay. than Uber or Airbnb. You know, one side of the marketplace is the consumer, right? So 
consumers don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I need to take my electricity. Right. That's just not how they think. <laughs> Unless you're the, you know, the, the $6 million man, which right. is only one of them. But uh, um, my point is the consumer, we need to build the awareness that there is another treatment alternative other than drugs or brain surgery. And we need to build that trust um, in, in the eyes and minds of the consumer so much so they're compelled to introduce calitherapy to their physician, whether it be their general practitioner or their neurologist. And ultimately we need to deliver an experience that delights them both clinically and experientially. And if we do that, they will not only continue to advocate to their providers, but they will also continue to advocate to their friends and family and create that market poll that's so important to introduce new innovations. On the other side of the marketplace, it's the provider. You know, our goal with providers is not really just to sell new technology, but really is to become a partner in them and helping neurology practices and physicians raise their standard of care and differentiate themselves in the marketplace. Physicians do not care about cool technology. They are looking for solutions that change the way they treat their patients in a positive way. So typically, you know, in my experience, novel treatments like ours, you have to deliver on four things. It's not about going in and saying, hey, look how cool this tech is. Now start prescribing it and using it with your patients. Rather, you have to prove to these physicians and practices that one, this, this clinically improves the outcomes of the care that you're delivering, right? Two, that it improves the patient experience and overall satisfaction with that novel technology. Three, in my experience, if you add a click to a physician's workflow, they'll forego a new technology. So you really have to demonstrate that this will help increase the, set, the staff productivity of that practice. And ultimately, which really matters a lot to the payers especially, you have to demonstrate how your new solution lowers overall costs, whether it's operating costs or total cost of healthcare. And if you do that consistently and reliably, then these practices and physicians will establish Cal in this case here as the new standard of care and become a really healthy business and ultimately create that flywheel effect of that two-sided marketplace that I started with. But it really is a three-sided marketplace, right? Because we all know the insurance companies control the purse strings, right? Whether, yes. you're, whether you're you know, one of the commercial insurance companies or whether you're Medicare, and you're right, if you can prove to them that you're going to lower the cost of care, they're all in. But short of that, they ain't doing anything. So how did you, you, how did you, how'd you get the insurance companies on board? You are correct, and that's three-sided. But unless you get patients that love it and physicians that adopt it, your payers will not cover it. Yeah, but even right? if you can, you can have patients that love it and your, my insurance company still won't cover it, right? I mean, it's got to be careful. And that's not uncommon with innovations, right? So one of our first um, significant payers is the uh, Veterans Affairs. Okay. So we have a both a coverage policy and a reimbursement um, um, policy with the VA, and um, the VA consistently prescribes uh, Calit to their their members, um, and we're seeing tremendous growth in that channel. We're also seeing growth in the insurance channel. We are actively working on establishing new coverage policies and contracts with large payers, including Medicare. In the meantime, we're doing it patient by patient. We call it a single case agreement model. And we're seeing strong um, adoption on the payer side, you know, patient by patient, which allows us then to build a nice um, uh, case of utilization to the payer. Say, hey, hey, payer, you know, 
this number of patients within your membership population are continuing to use and demand this product, which compels them to take a look at it from a coverage perspective and a contracting perspective. And that's what we're seeing in the marketplace now. So how'd you get the VA on board? What'd you show them to get them to over the hump? Well, you know, what's interesting, the VA is, is an integrated delivery network, right? So your payer and your provider and your, and your member are all part of one organization. And the VA has become, I would say, a little bit of a bellwether in the health system in the sense that that integrated model, you know, has delivered innovation and savings to the overall system. And so, you know, the VA is, 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 is looking for ways to provide a higher quality service to their, to their veterans. And they were an early adopter and um, they've been just a, you know, a real great um, um, partner of ours in expanding this to the market. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, this whole space is just so rapidly emerging. I never thought I'd say this, but I actually almost feel bad for the insurance companies because there's so much stuff coming at them and they have to try to figure out what's working, what's not, what's true, what's fake. I mean, it's got to be complicated to try to figure that out. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when you ask a, 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 say, a payer, you know, you know, about essential tremor, for example, and they don't truly understand the size, the complexity, the magnitude of that market. They kind of think it as benign. So it's our job. It's any job of a, of a innovative healthcare startup to play the role of an educator. And you've mm-hmm. got to educate with, with data and with facts. And you also have to leverage your, your physicians as champions in really bringing to life the story of the patient in a more credible way to these payers. And if you could do that, then they listen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, I, I love your passion about this. How did you wind up here? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, you know, you know, I started my healthcare journey um, at a payer, Blue Shield of California. Okay. And, you know, that's where I, I, I got my kind of, I, I found my mission. You know, if you think about industry out there, Healthcare is one of those industries that has really yet been disrupted by new technology. Take music, take retail, take commerce. All of those industries, massive industries, has been have been disrupted by technology. Well, 20% of the U.S. GDP is derived by the healthcare system, and it's just stuck in the 20th century. And so I'm on this mission to help bring the healthcare system into the 21st century. And, you know, working at a payer, especially an innovative payer like Blue Shield, you really get a great perspective on the different um, stakeholders in the system and how to how to innovate. And so I left the payer model to move more into technology. And I my prior company was iRhythm, which was one of the also a Stanford Biodesign uh, alum, in that they were the first to really um, develop this digital health wearable monitoring kind of technology for cardiology. And um, I really loved being part of that team and, and growing that team. And to be honest, the reason to come to Cala was very similar in that the market opportunity is huge. The current standard of care is very, very low. The innovation is founded on clinical evidence. And it was at a stage of the company where I get the most joy. I love designing, creating, building world-class you know, commercial organizations. And Cal had all those things um, uh, in, in one in one package, which really attracted me. And I've been here almost a year, and I haven't looked back. It's just been a wonderful run. That's awesome. That's, that's awesome. You know, not a lot of people know about this bioelectronic space. I said I didn't know anything about it before. You know, we were introduced through a mutual friend. Uh, and yeah, and my cursor 
researching this, you know, I read a report from GPM Securities that said, and I quote, the new wave of device-based innovation known as bioelectronic medicine is poised to drive an expansive sea change in the treatment of range of indications, right? That seems uh, pretty optimistic, an expansive sea change, right? So what makes you so bullish about this market for a bioelectronic? And why are they so bullish about this? Yeah, I, I think it's most important to answer that question looking through the lens of the patient and the physician. So take neurology in, in, in our area of movement disorder as just a, a proxy for, for why you know, we are so bullish on this. So in, in our area of movement disorder, the, the standard of care is really low. Physicians are very dissatisfied with the existing treatment options for movement disorder, especially in, a, in a central tremor. As I said earlier, there's really been no innovation in treatment for decades. And so think about these, 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 these patients, right? They say, go doc, I have this tremor. How can you help me? Well, the doc is really unable to operate at the top of their license in providing treatment options to really help improve their quality of life. And so the common narrative goes as following. Patient, I can prescribe you drugs, but they will likely not work. And you'll have serious side effects. So here you go. And then patient will try the drugs, assuming they could actually tolerate the drug. And over time, it'll likely habituate. And so they'll come back to the doc and say, well, what else do you have for me? And the doc will say, well, the next option, once drugs fail, is brain surgery. And as we said earlier, very few patients are interested or even qualified for brain surgery. In fact, less than 1% of the patient population. And so here you have a physician who went to medical school, got into care to help people, and he or she cannot operate at the top of their license. No physician likes that. And then you have a patient who has no treatment options for a debilitating disease. And so, you know, and these are massive markets, right? We, we already talked about the size of this market. Think about the migraine market in the US. It's almost 40 million people, right? And all they have are drugs. And so I think this notion of wearable neuromodulation, bioelectronic medicine is proven to be safe and effective, non-habituating, and people could integrate it in their, in their daily lives. And something we haven't talked about, data. What drug gives you as a patient or a provider data on your utilization, on your kinematic effect, the clinical benefit? None of them do. It's all analog. So the, these, this, this notion of bioelectronic medicine, you have data now that gives feedback directly, safely to the patient says, hey, when you utilize it in this way, you get a better benefit, right? Keep utilizing, right? And then that data that goes back to your doctor and says, hey, doc, this is how often I'm utilizing. This is the clinical effect. This is my overall satisfaction and impact my quality of life. And then they could better, you know, treat your condition over time. And so, you know, that's another benefit. And so I think that's why everybody's so bullish. Yeah. Yeah. The data point is really interesting because you think about it from a drug. How's the drug working? Well, it made me a little loopy. What kind of data point is that? How's your pain? Well, my subjective pain on a scale of one to 10 is a six, but my six might be Doug's too. You just don't know. And so it's completely, totally subjective. And here you're really going to a much more objective way of thinking about treatment and measuring effectiveness. Right. right. Really interesting. Well, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. You know, for example, on Cala, we do a pre-post therapy session assessment. So we could tell you or your physician exactly how effective that therapy was on your tremor. Think about this through like a drug lens, though. I mean, drug companies, yeah, I mean, it's 
they're going to continue to develop drugs, mm-hmm. but they also have to compete in this marketplace. And so I think it's also very attractive for drug companies, more forward-thinking drug companies, to invest in these kinds of um, innovations to, to round out their portfolio. What changed in technology over the past 10 years to enable all of this, right? Is 10 years the right time horizon? Because like we keep saying like there's no innovation since 1987, and yet it feels like in the past 10 years, there's just been a ton of innovation. What changed? Well, I mean, I think you have the uh, the innovation and advancement in sensor technology. Okay. Right. So that's that's clearly something that has advanced over the last 10 years. Obviously, artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning algorithms, deep learning algorithms to take massive amounts of data and derive insights that could then, you know, improve at the patient level and the population level, you know, the quality of care that's delivered has also advanced dramatically. You know, I think this notion of you look at through the payer lens, right? Payers want to ensure that patients receive care at the lowest setting, cost setting, right? And so the more care you could provide at home or remotely is obviously a lower cost than administration into a hospital or to a clinic. And so I think that's not going away. This notion of value-based care is for here to stay. And so I think those are three great examples, fact-based examples, of why this is going to continue to grow and accelerate. You know, you've hit on a couple of themes. We've only been in this podcast for about six months, but you've hit on a number of themes. You know, we talk a lot about practicing the top of your license. We've talked a lot about value-based care. We've talked a lot about chronic disease management, right? Uh, We've had a number of guests talk to us about the investment dollars pouring into technology and the pervasive nature of mobile devices. And I think you also touched around the, the... medical consumerization of wearables. Here's a catchphrase for you. Yep. Do you think we're on, on the precipice of a new way to manage chronic disease? Well, I think we're in it. In it, I think okay. we're in it. Um, and I think we've been talking about it for a while. And I would just say, you know, I think the, uh, the future is bright and that chronic care management, patient-driven, remote, mm-hmm. data-driven services wrapped around that data will only continue to grow. I think we'll still have a lot of headwinds as it relates to the time, right? Our healthcare system uh, is very complex, um, you know, and it's- it's This it's, just in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's probably a whole podcast right there. What are the factors that uh, are of the greatest complexity and time barriers? But, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, the more we can make it easier for patients to access these types of personalized care options that are safe and effective. And to your point that you keep hammering home, continue to partner with health plans to educate them to cover these new treatment options so that they are affordable. Yeah. They are affordable. We'll then see these innovations, the adoption of these innovations continue to accelerate, but there are still headwinds. Yeah. You know, my old format and the colleagues will be happy to hear you say that I'm hammering home to work with the uh, health plans. Let's make them happy. Uh, you know, I had uh, Jim Persley from Hinge Health on the podcast a few weeks back, uh, and we were talking about digital musculoskeletal treatment. You know, I've known Jim for years and years, and he was speaking passionately about the adoption of Hinge's technology within what we'll call the Medicare population, right? Uh, you probably serve a large Medicare population as well, that over 40, I think, you know, that's definitely 40 to 50s for people, the big onset of essential tremor. You know, my experience with the Medicare population comes down to my parents and my parents' friends. And diplomatic, we will say they have, and air quotes, varying levels of comfort with technology, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 
what's been your experience with that 60-plus-year-old population and how they're adopting your technology? You know, when I worked at Alive Corps as the chief operating officer, our primary audience was Medicare. When I was at iRhythm, our primary audience was Medicare. Mm-hmm. And here at Cala, our primary audience is Medicare, all of which are high-growth uh, organizations. Yeah, baby boomers. Um, I'd say it comes down to a few things, Justin, what I've learned, right? In my experience, patients really care about two things that are inextricable, and I'll explain that why. Okay. One is ease, right? And especially the Medicare population. Mm-hmm. You as an innovative, novel therapy or solution or device, whatever it is, it's your job to make it as easy to understand, to choose that product and to use that product. That's one of the factors. Mm-hmm. The other factor is value. Value is to me, it's, there's two parts of that. It's, it's the access to quality of care at an affordable price. And the inextricability part of it is if you are seen to be not easy, like I don't understand it or I have a hard time using it, you're actually perceived to be of low value, right? The same goes as if you're not affordable, then you're not easy. And so no matter how, how amazing your, your, your solution is, if you can't make it easy, right, and make it perceived to be a value, what affordable and quality, you're not going to get anywhere, especially with the Medicare population. You know, oftentimes we see uh, with the Medicare population, they require a little more of a white glove approach. But I got to be honest, a very significant part of our, part of our business is self-serve digitally. They're engaging with, you know, our YouTube videos on how to onboard, how to use the product, how to troubleshoot. They're not even calling our call center. Interesting. And that continues to grow. And so I think there's a little bit of a myth that the Medicare population is kind of stuck in that 20th century, the analog. I actually do see a lot of uh, Medicare population. Obviously, they all have smartphones or iPads, and they're engaging with that. It's just your job as the innovator to make it as easy and valuable as possible. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So, Doug, this has been great. I've learned an absolute ton today. But before I go, I got one last question for you here. I want to get your thoughts on industry roll-up. As we've talked about multiple times today, lots of innovation in this space, just tons of it, right? And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of companies offering tools for chronic disease management, entering with medical, you know, medical devices and mobile devices. And, you know, even that JPM securities report that I cited, they have more than 100 companies in this space, including 21 alone treating neurological disorders. They got dozens more treating diabetes, pulmonary disease, inflammatory, metabolic, urological. I mean, I could go on and on. A lot of companies, a lot of devices. Do you see a roll-up coming in all this? Do we head, does this industry head towards like where the pharmaceutical industry is happening? Is that today where you got a bunch of tiny startups with a bunch of drugs in their pipeline over here? And then you got some really big companies on the other side that handle manufacturing and distribution? Or do you think this industry goes a different path? Yeah. Well, you know, I think you're you're referring to is, you know, will there be consolidation mm-hmm. in the marketplace? And I think, you know, I'll paraphrase um, a perspective that I learned from a colleague of mine not too long ago. And he talked about there are market makers and market takers. Yep. And there's always that ecosystem, right? The market maker is that innovator. It's that startup that is unbridled by bureaucracy and constraints. And they're able to be you know, very innovative and flexible and agile in the marketplace and move very quickly, in which a, a larger company could not do. And that's, that's what's happening. And we are not constrained by those large corporate 
um, you know, uh, 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 barriers, let's just call them. And that's naturally, and I think you're seeing that in the early phases, right, of this bioelectronic medicine movement. But then there are the market takers, which really are, are the larger companies that rely on the innovation from these market makers, mm-hmm. right, to help differentiate their value propositions, right? And, and in healthcare, especially, it's, it's very common. So I think, I think, yes, absolutely, Justin, you're going to see consolidation happening with these market takers in order to robustly you know, build out their value propositions. And I spoke to pharma as a, maybe as an as a entree to this question early on in that in order for pharma to be relevant in the future, they have to have a digital offering. Uh-huh. It cannot be just drugs and formularies, right? And so I would imagine you would see a lot of market taking by pharma other companies like the Medtronics and like who were founded obviously on, 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 on brain stimulation. Right. Great. Well, Doug, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I, I loved it. This was really good. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, thanks for listening today to Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Dr. Carolyn Jasek from Omada Health. Omada is a virtual first chronic care provider. So I think my conversation with Carolyn will be a great follow-up to today's episode with Doug. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.